Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. What would we do if we made contact with an extraterrestrial civilization? This episode, I'm speaking to Emma Johanna Purinen, a St. Leonard's interdisciplinary doctoral scholar at the University of St. Andrews who combines astronomy, data science, and media studies in her research on exoplanets and science fiction. We spoke about the search for extraterrestrial life, what would happen if we did make contact, and whether science fiction has us properly prepared. Hi, I'm Emma Johanna Purinen. I'm a PhD student at the University of St. Andrews, and I study how exoplanets are portrayed in science fiction. So I'm at the St. Andrews Center for Exoplanet Science, which is an interdisciplinary group of researchers sort of studying exoplanets from all angles. We're doing detection and characterization, but we're also talking about space law and space ethics and linguistics. And we also um, are involved in some SETI research um, as well in terms of uh, if we were to make contact with aliens, how would we understand their messages? Uh, how would it change life on Earth, etc.? And that segues into my connection to the hub as well. <laughs> That's all, I mean, it's, what an intro. It's all incredibly interesting stuff, isn't it? You, like, you, do, do you ever have a boring day? <laughs> Uh, no, not really, because that's the the beauty of being interdisciplinary is if you get a little bit sick of one of the subjects, you can go, okay, I'll put that on the back burner for a second, transition to something else. <laughs> well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast and um, speaking to me today, Emma. Um, I thought it'd be worth just yeah st- starting off by talking a little bit about SETI, uh, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Um because I suppose when a lot of people hear that, you know, there's there might be an element of um, skepticism or just sort of that sort of linking it or connecting it to things like ufology and UFO and, you know, alien visits and stuff like that. But it's a bit more scientific than that, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of people first leap to this sort of... Um, I would call it mythology surrounding UFOs, but uh, SETI is quite different. Um, SETI, first of all, is um, an astronomy endeavor. It takes place beyond the Earth's atmosphere. Um, UFO detections or people who claim to have seen UFOs, that's all happening within the Earth's atmosphere, um, which is a much better studied area. We know a lot more about the Earth's atmosphere than we do about everything beyond it. So I think it would be um, a pretty tall order for aliens to have been hiding in the Earth's atmosphere and we didn't know about it this whole time. Um, There there are a number of uh, astronomers who have written some really good think pieces on this that I would direct you to. Uh, Jason Wright at Penn State and uh, Katie Mack at the Perimeter Institute in Canada. They've both written some excellent uh, write-ups on why SETI and UFO lore are different things. But I think part of it, too, is that um, people who are who who sort of believe in UFOs, they do they do talk in those terms of belief, don't they? Like X-Files, I want to believe style. Whereas uh, SETI researchers are very skeptical. It would take a lot of evidence to convince most SETI researchers you talk to that something that they had detected really was a signal from aliens. Uh, SETI does have its origins in astronomy as well. It um, The first SETI search was, uh, like the first modern SETI search was by Frank Drake with Project Ozma, where um, he was at the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia and 
was uh, looking in the direction of the stars Tau Ceti and Epsilon Eridani, which are two fairly nearby, fairly sun-like stars. He was observing at the 21 centimeter hydrogen spectral line, which is, um, that, that's a very, like it's a naturally occurring um, radio signal in space. It corresponds to the energy of a photon emitted from a hydrogen atom during a spin flip transition. So it was thought that um, any intelligent species out there would be aware of this line and might use that frequency as sort of a cosmic hailing frequency. So that was a very um, science-based um, astronomy experiment to listen in the directions of those two stars. That that project didn't turn up anything, but that's just uh, SETI has some strong groundings in science as opposed to UFO lore. You've uh, touched, touched a bit uh, uh, on it there, but um, yeah, what sort of, um, well, what sort of technology and also techniques are, are open to, to, to SETI um, searchers? Yeah, how do people actually do SETI? Well, first, I want to say that sort of the idea that there might be other life out there in the universe is is actually very old. It sort of goes back to the Greeks, actually, but then it was suppressed by the church for about a thousand years um, until you get to the Renaissance and you've got people like Giordano Bruno who said, um, and this is a, a quote from him, that there would be innumerable celestial bodies, stars, globes, suns, and earths that may be sensibly perceived therein by us. And if you start thinking about cosmic plural the idea that every star out there is like the sun, you start realizing, okay, it makes sense that it would have planets around it. And might they have life? Might there be aliens or somebody else out there? And then how, how would you, how would you reach them? How would you detect them? How would you learn about them? So that's sort of the starting place for doing SETI science. Um, a lot of SETI science, like this Project Ozma, is um, listening for radio signals because space is really, really big. And unfortunately, we don't know of anything that goes faster than the speed of light, or perhaps fortunately, if you don't want aliens reaching us. Um, but it just makes sense that civilizations would be sending signals with electromagnetic radiation, light moving at that speed of light, um, way before they would reach any sort of hypothetical ability to travel between the stars at a reasonable speed. Um, on top of which, uh, people tend to look in the radio part of the spectrum specifically because those have much longer wavelengths and they're much less likely to get absorbed by anything in space. They penetrate the Earth's atmosphere very well, uh, whereas the smaller wavelength light would be more likely to get absorbed. So those are those would seem like good places to send signals. So you've got um, a number of different groups active in SETI research today. You've got um, this project called Breakthrough Listen, um, which was founded by Yuri Milner and Stephen Hawking. You've got, um, there's a lot of activity in um, California. There's the Berkeley SETI Research Center. Um, there's the SETI Institute, uh, which is a not-for-profit and collaborates with the Berkeley SETI Research Center. Um, they've built the Allen Telescope Array out there in California, which is the first um, telescope array that is dedicated to listening for SETI signals. But they also get a lot of um, time on other um, telescope arrays as well. Um, other things that people are looking for besides just listening to radio signals would include um, techno signatures. I love that word, um, <laughs> which would be stuff like uh, signs of an intelligent species out there. So that would be 
Um, are you familiar with a Dyson sphere? I'm, I'm not, no, personally, no. Ah, so a Dyson sphere is a hypothetical um, structure. If you had a civilization that was advanced enough, they could build a structure that sort of goes around a star and captures all the energy coming out of that star. Um, it's like unthinkably advanced for us. We have not even <laughs> captured all the energy of our own planet yet. Um, but uh, if a Dyson sphere did exist, uh, it would probably have some waste heat. You could detect that. That would be a techno signature. You could um, possibly detect effects of um, in an intelligent species mining in their asteroid belt in their solar system. Or um, there are techno signatures that... Uh, like humans give off. Like if you look at earth at night, if you've ever seen one of those pictures of looking down at the earth at the night, you can see all the lights from the cities. Um, people are looking into, would it be possible to detect uh, night lights from cities on alien planets as well? So those are, those would be non-radio signal ways of, of looking for intelligent life out there. That's so cool. I mean, there's, there's just, there's just so much to discuss there. You know, it's mm -hmm. just, it's just one of those, it's, it's definitely one of those, you know, Let's have a chat about it in the pub uh, topics, I find. But Absolutely. It's definitely, it, it's definitely worth um, talking about the the hub that you're involved in. And I think that the, the key in the in the title of the hub you're involved in is is post-detection. Because that's, that's really what it's all about, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so a lot of the energy toward and excitement towards SETI has been in experiments to achieve detection. But what about after that. So that's where the SETI post-detection hub comes in. So this is, um, we're based at the University of St. Andrews. It's run by Dr. John Elliott and Dr. Martin Dominic, and it's meant to be a coordinating center for an international effort to bring together expertise across the sciences and the humanities um, to set out impact assessments and protocols and procedures for a responsible response if there was detection of um, an intelligent alien civilization. So this is sort of filling in a policy gap of what happens after contact, because there is there is really precious little written down about what to do in that scenario. Um, there, the SETI Institute did write out some protocols, but they are for um, they are for detection, not really for post detection. So it's one of those things that like you don't want to be stuck. You don't want to not think about it before it happens, right? You don't want to be uh, like caught with your pants down when the um, aliens, if the aliens do ever show up. So it's one of those things you really have to think about ahead of time. And that that is what we are aiming to do at the post-detection hub. Yeah. So is is there much sort of protocol? Uh, if you look at, you know, sort of bodies like NASA or the UN or like the Space Treaty and things like that, is there much actual legislation and or protocol that actually exists at the moment? No, not currently. And there largely isn't that much. Um, you mentioned the space treaty. There uh, is an outer space treaty that dates back to the 60s um, that's at the UN. That pretty much governs human activity in space. It doesn't doesn't really say anything about um, about aliens and SETI research. That's more... Um, was more politically motivated as as it looked like people were going to be moving um, onto the moon in the '60s and things like that. So this this really is a policy gap that we're trying to think through scenarios of what might happen and have have something prepared. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those situations. Like I I was talking to a friend about it one time who isn't really at all interested in sort of space or astronomy or anything like that. Um, 
And he asked me, do you think that there's like life beyond Earth? Not even intelligent life, just life beyond Earth. And I said, well, yeah, like they're, they're, they're more than surely they're more than likely is. And he sort of looked at me as if I was like crazy. Um, but I and you would you would know this, this a lot more than me, obviously. But don't, don't you find that the more you sort of know about exoplanets and, and the universe and space and astronomy, you just you come to the conclusion that, well, of, well, of, well, of course, there's life beyond Earth. How could there not be? But for someone who doesn't really think about that sort of thing, it does seem like a crazy notion, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, I'd say there's there's two things there. One is that the vast majority of people don't think beyond Earth's atmosphere very much because it doesn't affect their day to day. Um, if you're not an astronomer, there's you know you you look up, you see the moon, you see the stars, but you don't really interact with them on your day-to-day basis. So thinking about aliens is just not something that crosses your mind very much. But yeah, I would, I would, um, I haven't done a formal poll or anything, but I would hazard a guess that most astronomers I interact with think that it's far more likely there is life out there than there isn't, just because it feels like it would be very, I don't know, cosmically strange if we're the only planet that has life on it, given all we've discovered. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, so sort of, Perhaps existentially speaking, uh, or philosophically speaking, do, what do you think it would mean if, if we did discover that, that there was indeed uh, intelligent life beyond Earth? Yeah, well, I think I, th- I think it would change life on Earth and the human experience sort of forever. Um, even a microbial discovery would in our own solar system, like let alone intelligent life. There's that quote from um, Arthur C. Clarke that goes, two possibilities exist. Either we are alone in the universe or we are not. And both of these are equally terrifying. Um, (laughs) I would agree with that. Um, I like to think we're not alone. I I think it would be more terrifying if uh, personally, that's a me personally thing. I think it would be more terrifying if we were alone. But I think uh science broadly and astronomy specifically have sort of been this continuous exercise of learning that we're not special. It, it goes back to the Copernican principle that we don't occupy a place of cosmic importance. So I think this would be a continuation of that um, learning that and and it would it would, you know, like um, you hear about astronauts who have been up to the space station talking about how their perspective on our planet is completely changed. I think it would be a moment like that, but for all of humanity, it would get a lot more people thinking about the non-Earth parts of the universe than currently do. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you're t- talking about Copernicus, you know, how, for example, like the 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 church of the day reacted to the heliocentric model. Well, imagine how they would react to actual scientific proof that like life life exists beyond earth <laughs> mm-hmm. um so uh d- d- does does the does the post detection hub have sort of um uh theories or ideas as to what sort of protocols you would like from from bodies like nasa and UN and and, and the un in terms of in terms of SETI? Yeah, well, so not not to be trite, but uh, first off, we would like there to be protocols. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I, I think um, it would be great for them to have a catalog of expertise at the ready of people who are studying um, things like uh, linguists who are really good at interpreting, at deciphering encrypted messages, for example. 
um, and then various plans in place for various scenarios that might come about. Um, for example, we receive a message, can we uh, decipher it or not? What do we do in each scenario? What if aliens were physically present? What if either species, what if we detect aliens, but neither species has the technology to travel? So therefore, it's just going to be a back and forth over the radio waves scenario, like uh, sort of uh, gaming out um, a whole bunch of different possibilities that we think might arise. Um, but we think it's very important to do this uh, and do it on an international level so that um, if this were ever to come about, humanity could react in a way that is cohesive based on evidence. It's international. No one's hoarding the signal, for example. And then also um, staying open-minded about it because we are in this sort of, um, I think bizarre scenario. <laughs> I study science fiction and it's sort of science fiction's fault where we actually have stereotypes about aliens, right? We, like everyone thinks, oh, little green men, which is, you know, we haven't detected aliens. How can we possibly have stereotypes about something that doesn't exist? And then if we ever did encounter real aliens, they probably wouldn't be anything like our stereotypes. So keeping an open mind and and remembering that, I think, is is very important. Yeah. And, you, you know, um, you, you touched on something else I wanted to sort of speak to you about. And it's this your, your interest in in uh, exoplanets and well, your, your research into exoplanets, but your interest in um, like fi- fictional um exoplanets um and i was i was wondering um do you think that like uh you know really i I suppose the field of exoplanet science is really only you know was it like 30 years old it's really sort of like the 90s isn't it that you know we sort of Mm -hmm. make the first confirmed discoveries of a, a planet existing beyond the solar system um do you think that like those subsequent 30 years have 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 sort of changed our um, our views on on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and, and, and the possibilities and, and the likelihood? Yeah, absolutely. So um, just for a brief overview, the field of exoplanet science is about 30 years old. The first exoplanets were discovered in the early to mid-1990s. Um, and since then, we've detected um, 5,000 exoplanets. We hit the number 5,000 just this year, and everyone's very excited about this. Um, it took a while to detect them because they are so dim compared to their stars. So a lot of the detection methods that we use are these indirect detection methods based on observations of the stars themselves. But once we've started discovering them, it's sort of like the floodgates have opened. And now now we found evidence that, um, you know, more, more stars in the galaxy have a planet than don't. Um, there's, uh, if, if you just extrapolate the numbers we've been finding, there must be billions of planets just in our own galaxy, et cetera, et cetera. And before that, um, like it's it's almost uh, wild for me to think I'm I'm fairly young that there were people uh, doing SETI research not even knowing for certain that other planets actually existed around other stars. I mean, again, it makes sense to assume that they are there, but not having the concrete evidence. Um, and now we do. We have that concrete evidence. Uh, exoplanet science has reinvigorated SETI efforts. A lot of um, uh, SETI listening projects will target. Um, they're listening on stars that we know have exoplanets and especially ones that uh, have exoplanets that would be in the habitable zone. That is the zone where uh, liquid water could exist on the planet's surface. Um, 
it's also exoplanet science has also given us new ways to search for life on other planets. Uh, it's not just listening uh, for radio signals anymore, but um, increasingly we're hearing about searching for biosignatures, which are um, signs that life might be present on the planet. Now, biosignatures would be evidence in favor of life, but no, none of them are going to be definitive evidence of life the same way, um, for example, a, a, a clearly made by intelligent people message would be. So biosignatures would be evidence in favor. Um, and these would be things like certain gases present in an atmosphere. Um, and we are reaching the point of being able to um, to detect gases in the atmospheres of these planets. Uh, so this is uh, so, sort of a, a new era for SETI, uh, the rise of exoplanet science and astrobiology. What makes you come at exoplanet science from the the point of view of sort of exoplanets uh, or planets in in science fiction and how, how do you sort of approach that that scientifically if, if if you know what i mean yeah so that's what my project is about it's called uh turning science fiction into data science so i'm very interested in um well, science fiction is a genre and how it presents science, because although it is fiction, um, science fiction is always based on or inspired by an idea from real science. And because we have this interesting scenario with exoplanet science, where um, real exoplanets were only discovered in the 90s, but we have decades and decades of science fiction works featuring exoplanets from before then, I'm able to sort of uh, compare and, and see how that scientific knowledge has sort of been transported uh, to science fiction readers through the medium of science fiction authors, like all this new data we're getting about exoplanets. So what what I do for my research is I'm um, compiling a database of fictional exoplanets, and then I'm... Um, using Bayesian network analysis, uh, data science, um, to determine how various characteristics of the fictional exoplanets influence various other characteristics. So I can, I can see things like um, uh, how publication date will uh, affect the likelihood of um, there being life on the fictional exoplanet, for example. Whoa, like what, what sort of thing would determine that? Um, yeah, so I, I've found so far that the planets um, that are in, in works written after the discovery of real exoplanets, so the fictional exoplanets from post-1990s, um, they're, they're getting weirder. They're actually getting, um, it's getting less likely that there's native intelligent life on the planet. It's getting less likely that humans can survive on the fictional planet. So I think um, possibly I'm getting ahead of myself uh, here a little bit because uh, I'm sure I'll talk about this later. But I think the weird discoveries from exoplanet science have been um, influencing authors certainly to feature stranger fictional worlds that are less human friendly. So um, if you if you look at back at sort of science fiction um, planets before the 1990s and then after the 1990s, or even just considering what we now know about those, the exoplanets that we have uh, confirmed and studied a bit, did, did, did science fiction writers get it right? Were they, were they way off? Largely, I'd say no. <laughs> they, they didn't get stuff right about exoplanets. That's not, uh, they're not a monolith. There's definitely some that had some really 
really creative ideas. Um, but I always like to say science fiction is written by humans for humans, typically about humans. So you end up with a lot of very Earth-like worlds, which is not necessarily the same population of real exoplanets that exist. And a lot of that is just because you've got humans in the story and they need to be comfortable. Um, so you've got a lot of very Earth-like fictional exoplanets from both before and after discovery of real exoplanets. Um, but yeah, largely no, they, they got some stuff right. Like the existence of, uh, planets that orbit two suns, for example, Tatooine. And it's to the point where, uh, when you see popular science reporting on exoplanet discoveries, if they find one that's orbiting two suns, they'll call it a Tatooine planet. Um, because that's a, a quick way of connecting with the audience. Everyone, everyone knows Star Wars knows what that means. Um, hot Jupiter's really threw everyone for a loop, like everyone. So the first um, discovery of an exoplanet around a sun-like star is uh, what we very creatively uh, have termed a hot Jupiter. That is a very massive gas giant planet that orbits very close to its sun. Um, so nothing like that exists in our solar system. In our solar system, we've got all the small rocky planets close to the sun and the big gas giants like Jupiter are much further away from the sun. And um, nobody expected there to be gas giants with uh, such short years orbiting so close to their stars. That didn't make sense with the models of solar system formation um, that we believed to be the truth back in the 90s or before detection. Um, I can't find hot Jupiters in science fiction. If anybody out there has found a hot Jupiter in science fiction even today, let me know because I'm curious. But uh, um, that surprised astronomers and it surprised science fiction writers. I'd say that largely the mantra of truth being stranger than fiction is true. <laughs> what about sort of after, or well, in, in, in the present day, Do you, have you found any um, that... Uh, uh, planets in science fiction are a bit are a bit closer to what we're actually seeing in, in exoplanet science. I've definitely seen some examples. Um, yeah, it's like I said, the the data is overall showing that um, they're 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 getting less Earth like overall. Um, I've got some. I have some some of my favorite examples of fictional exoplanets, though, come from both before and after discovery. I really love um, Becky Chambers' novella, To Be Taught If Fortunate, which features a team of explorers on four different exoplanets orbiting a red dwarf. It a little bit reminds me of the TRAPPIST-1 system, um, which is a system of seven exoplanets all orbiting very close together around this tiny, dim little red dwarf star. Um, that's, I think, one of the most... Uh, I think scientifically accurate portrayals of an exoplanet mission I've ever seen. That's Becky Chambers to be taught if fortunate. Um, but then there's there's some strange creative stuff from, and, and that's a recent book, but there's some strange creative stuff from before um, exoplanet discovery as well. A lot of Larry Niven's planets in his, his books are very strange. There's one um, in his book, Integral Trees, which is, it's actually a gas giant orbiting a pulsar, which is a dead remnant of a massive star, but it orbits so close to the pulsar that its atmosphere is stretched to the point where it's in a, a, tor a toroidal shape, like a donut shape. There's <laughs> the core of the planet, and then there's this like endless donut-shaped atmosphere of the gas going around the star. I don't think that's physically possible, but it sure is creative, and there's a lot of people living in this sort of endless sky. Um, so yeah, there, there, there's, there, is, there is definitely some creativity out there as well. So how do you think that, if we come back to SETI, how do you think science fiction throughout the ages and even now 
has prepared us for the possibility of making contact with an alien civilization. Because, I mean, maybe it's just my own experience or, or the, the, the sort of media that I consume, but it, it tends to be that aliens are hostile in, in, the, thing, in the things that I read and, and watch, but maybe that's not been the case. Do you, do you, think, do you think sci-fi has, has, has ill-prepared us for, for eventual contact? Yeah, well, yeah, definitely there's a lot of portrayals of hostile aliens in science fiction, like War of the Worlds and Alien. Um, I think overall science fiction is, it's a powerful tool, but it's one that you have to be careful with. I sort of see it as like a repository of humanity's imagined futures. Um, so I think it's very important to to look at how we are imagining the different ways this might go. Um, but you do have to be careful with like what I said earlier about having stereotypes about aliens, which doesn't make any sense when you think about it. I even I even catch myself sometimes thinking, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with first contact scenarios. But of course, that's not true. We haven't experienced a first contact scenario. Um, I think that a lot of that that hostile aliens and science fiction thing sort of comes out of a fear of the unknown. Um, and to study subjects like astrobiology, exoplanet science, search for extraterrestrial intelligence, where so much of what we're doing is really facing the unknown, you have to get comfortable with the unknown. And I think science fiction can actually help with that. I think it does an excellent job of sort of letting us experience different points of view. It'll estrange our perspective, put you in the shoes of somebody else for the course of reading the book, and then you can you can come out of it with some new empathy, I think. So I think we have to be careful with it, but it can it can help us if we let it. Yeah, I'd never thought about it like that before. That, that's awesome. Like it's sort of almost like a a really good tool for sort of preparing us preparing us mm -hmm. for what might come yeah that's awesome i never thought about it like that before that's so cool do you look forward to the future as in terms of bigger and better telescopes new technology to search for i mean do, even just things like like the james o space telescope or the square kilometer array organization are, are are you sort of looking forward to what these new observatories will 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 show us Absolutely, yeah. So JWST um, launched last Christmas. We've already we've already been getting some really excellent data from it. I've seen some of the results. It's all very exciting. Um, the biggest area that I think JWST will be able to help SETI researchers in is in studying exoplanet atmospheres. And it can do this using this technique called transmission spectroscopy. So um, some exoplanets from our perspective here on Earth will be sort of fortuitously aligned such that we see them pass across the disk of their star as they orbit it. So ev every year it'll come around, we'll see it sort of eclipse the disk and it'll block a little bit of that light. And when that happens, um, some of the star's light is just getting completely blocked by the planet, but also some of the star's light is passing through that sliver of atmosphere on the edge of the planet's disk. And so if you can catch a spectrum of the light, you can sort of see what wavelengths are being absorbed, and that will tell you what chemicals are making up the planet's atmosphere. You can get a spectrum of the star's light when there's no planet in front of it, and then a spectrum when the planet's in front of it, see the difference and figure out what the planet's atmosphere is made of, which I, I just marvel at that, because again, these are planets that we can't actually see uh, because they're so dim compared to their stars, and we can tell what's in their atmosphere. JWST just last August um, released uh, 
some data from its uh, one of its instruments called the Near Infrared Spectrograph, which is the most uh, useful for this atmosphere trans- transmission spectroscopy. Um, they've detected carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of this exoplanet called WASP-39. Uh, that's the first time we've detected carbon dioxide. It's very exciting. Now, this uh, WASP-39 is one of these hot Jupiter planets I was talking about. It's very close to its star, which means that its atmosphere is highly irradiated. And uh, because heat makes things expand, the atmosphere is very puffy. Uh, that's the technical term. <laughs> um, <laughs> that makes its atmosphere easier to detect. But we do think JWST will also have the capability to detect and measure carbon dioxide in uh, thinner atmosphere is a small, smaller rocky planets, which if you're looking for habitability is really, really where you're looking. So this would be very useful uh, for SETI in terms of looking for biosignature gases, which um, I talked a bit about earlier. That would be evidence in favor of life. This would be things like um, oxygen, of course, as well as any really anything in the atmosphere that's out of thermodynamic equilibrium. For example, if you see methane with oxygen, those are two gases that uh, can't really exist together without they, – they'll, they'll just react and they'll form water and CO2. So they can't exist at the same time without uh, being replenished by something. And on Earth, that's life that's doing that replenishing. Uh, so that would be an indicator that there's, there's some sort of mechanism on that planet that is continuously replenishing this gas into the atmosphere. So that's sort of how biosignatures work. You um, – would you you would look into it and figure out okay how are all the abiotic not caused by life ways that this might be happening um and see if you can rule those out and if you can then there's a chance it might be caused by biology um so JWST is really giving us the most uh, exquisite look at exoplanet atmospheres that we've ever had and it's it's tremendously exciting to be seeing the data from that absolutely i mean it's it just it just feels like well, not even SETI, but even just, you know, um, the search for some sort of microbial life. As we sort of said at the start, it, it does just feel like inevitability, even within our lifetime, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially if we were to um, find microbial life elsewhere in the solar system, and we were able to determine that it didn't have the same origin as Earth life, just the fact that life might have started twice in the same solar system, that would be that would be an incredible discovery. I know. I mean, like, what are the chances of, of that? And if 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 that can happen in one solar system, then it just has to be happening in multiple solar systems, even within our own galaxy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Well, there's just there's just so much um, so much there. I mean, we, we, I'm sure we could talk about this all day. Um, but yeah, I want to say uh, thanks for coming on the on the podcast, Emma, and for speaking to me today. And you know, good luck with your with your research and and your your study of um, you know science fiction exoplanets it's, it's so cool really really interesting and, and good luck with the, the post-detection hub i'll be really interested to hear more about that um as the maybe maybe next year and uh, and we'll see what happens yeah thank you very much for having me i'm super excited to dig into more SETI research with the post-detection hub and if anybody out there listening has found a hot jupiter in science fiction you know how to contact me <laughs> <laughs> cheers emma thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify.